We're told in the early church that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I'm sure it must have been an exciting time as that there were baptisms practically every day. And that's why I love to see baptisms like this. Uh, love to see them even more. We're also told that they would meet around the things of the Lord and completely forget about time. And I'm glad that we can be like that this morning. <laughs> things being what they are. You've no doubt had the frustrating experience, as I have, of being tuned in to your favorite television show. And it's really one of those grippers. You know, Captain Kirk is in a Klingon jail or Wally and the Beave are really in the soup or something. And as you look at your watch, you realize there's only five more minutes to go. And how are they going to resolve this thing? And sure enough, those dreaded words come on the screen to be continued next week. Well, that's sort of the situation we find ourselves in this morning. Uh, we're in John chapter 4. You might want to turn over there now. Last week, David taught on the first half of John chapter 4. And this week, we're going to look at the second half. The only problem is it's right in the middle of the same story. We just sort of cut it in half. Uh, and that may make it a little bit difficult. But you'll recall in our last episode that Jesus and the disciples wanted to travel from Judea, which was in the south, up to Galilee in the north. And instead of taking the normal circuitous route, they went straight through the country of Samaria. Now, the Samaritans, in the minds and the hearts of the Jews, were worse than non-Jews. They were half-Jews. And for centuries, they had intermarried with Gentiles, and they had compromised the Jewish religion in every conceivable way. And the Jewish people hated them. They despised them. In the text we read, they had nothing to do with Samaritans. And yet Jesus wanted to go through Samaria. For one thing, he wasn't a bigot. He wasn't a racist. Secondly, he wanted to reach this foreign nation, this unreached people group for Christ, for himself, for, for eternal life. And thirdly, he wanted to teach his disciples something. He knew that these 12 men... These 11 would be the ones who would have to completely reach the world for Christ and through their message and the people who would follow after them. And he knew that dynamic principles such as this were better caught than taught. So rather than just teaching a Bible study on missions, he modeled it for them. And that's what we find Jesus doing here in this passage. You may have surmised that if I'm up here, we're talking about missions today. But I want to put you at ease. I think we've made missions far too complicated. You know, we think it's so complex. A person today, if they're contemplating a career in missions, they think, oh my gosh, it's so complicated. I've got to learn how to make fire from two sticks and how to paddle a canoe, how to run a dispensary from the heart of Africa. And let's see, the latest rage today in missions is tent making. You know, that's kind of where you sneak into a country that otherwise wouldn't want you to be there for Jesus. And so if I'm going to get a job in Kuwait or something, I've got to get my Ph.D. in nuclear physics. And, it, you know, we've just made it so complicated. But, you know, it's really quite simple. Missions is just this. Spreading the gospel so that every person on earth gets a chance to hear that God is a forgiving God. That's it. That's all there is to it. It's, it's no more complex than that. Advancing the gospel... Through, through people, through missionaries, through the church, whatever, so that every man, woman, and child on the face of the globe will have the same opportunity that we have 
to know what Jesus has done on the cross. And I'm comforted to know this morning that this whole missions idea was not thought up in Pasadena. It wasn't thought up in Wheaton College or in 17th century London or something like that. But it comes, it springs from the heart of God. And God has declared from the beginning of history and from the very first pages of the scripture that uppermost in his purposes are the advance of the gospel to all peoples, to all nations, as he says, so that all nations would be blessed with the blessing of Abraham. And throughout scriptures, God has said that is his heart. That is his purpose. That is what uh, he is excited about as human history unfolds. Now, let's pick it up in verse 27. Again, John chapter 4. Again, the context, Jesus is sharing about the living water with this woman at the well in Samaria, the living water that would spring up within her to eternal life. And we read, Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Or why do you seek? Why are you talking with her? Now, when we read something like just then, we should ask, just when? Well, just upon the statement in verse 26, Jesus tells the woman, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. I am the one through whom God is going to mediate salvation and redemption to all peoples. And you know, I believe that she believed it. And she was touched. And she was changed right then and there. And upon the statement, the disciples then enter into the scene. Now, it says that they were surprised to see him speaking with a woman. That seems a little strange. It seems fairly normal to us for uh, two people to be speaking, even if one of them is a woman, a man and a woman. But this was very strange for Jesus, as David pointed out last week. For one thing, Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. For another thing... Jewish men did not speak with Jewish women, by and large, in public. We have a number of pieces in literature that make that very clear that this was not to be done in their culture and their religion. And then thirdly, it was even all the more weird because Jesus was a rabbi. And so the the disciples were very surprised. But they didn't ask any questions. They had been around Jesus just long enough to realize that he did strange things. But this is, I think, in the text is an example for us. Whenever we reach across cultural boundaries, national boundaries, people boundaries to another people group, we're going to have to do strange things. It almost always involves being misunderstood, uh, appearing as some sort of strange entity that doesn't fit in people's mindset, and doing things that are a little bit unusual in the culture. When we were in Alexandria, Egypt, my wife Monica used to take our daughter Krista to gymnastics class. There would be several uh, Egyptian kids in the class, 20 or 30 kids. If you would see Krista do gymnastics today, you wouldn't believe that she's had any training. <laughs> but every week she would go, and Monica would sit with the uh, Egyptian women and talk, and they would wait as their kids you know, jump up and down and, and so forth. And almost invariably, Monica would get into discussion with the, with the various women about Christ. It was just a real neat opportunity from the Lord. And one day she was talking with this gal, well-dressed Egyptian lady, uh, sophisticated, well-educated, very fluent in English. And they were talking about the things of the Lord. And so Monica said, so you see, Jesus is alive today. And this woman burst out laughing in her face. And for about five minutes, uncontrollably, couldn't stop laughing. You know, who is this Kawaga, which is their term for kind of for gringo, 
you know, who is a little strange already, telling me that Jesus, the Messiah, is alive today. And so the next week, Monica comes back, and this woman comes over, except this time, you know, she's got another woman by the arm, another Egyptian gal, and she says, kind of, snicker, snicker, tell her what you told me last week. You know, Jesus is alive. <laughs> and so Monica proceeds to, you know, share the gospel with her, and, and that Jesus rose from the dead and is alive today. And, you know, it's very funny. So eventually they invite her to come to their home and uh, just then proceeds to become a very uh, quality time of opening up the scripture to many women in that home as well as the man of the house. But it almost always involves stress and appearing strange. And uh, one of our ladies on the team that we had was so much caught by the stress, she went to the bank and needed to get out $700 U.S., put it in her purse, went home, Home for them was in a very crowded neighborhood up on the ninth floor of an apartment building. And that she got it into her head, it's time to clean her purse. And so she proceeds to the window, turns her purse over, and shakes it out the window. And I'm not sure what those people thought of her on the street, you know, because they knew where the money had come from. Uh, Fortunately, there were some kind people who gathered about 400 of it, and she lost the rest. But, uh, you know, it's stressful. But Jesus had the courage to appear strange, to do that which was unconventional. And it takes courage, but it's ultimately worthwhile. Jesus is showing us here that in spite of the most overwhelming obstacles culturally between nations, between peoples, the gospel can go forth. And people can receive the gospel from the hands of a foreigner. In fact, I'd like to read something to you. It was a Jew who brought the gospel to Rome, a Roman who took it to France, a Frenchman who took it to Scandinavia, a Scotsman who evangelized Ireland, and an Irishman who made the missionary conquest of Scotland. No people have ever received the gospel except at the hands of an alien. And that same thing is true today. It's got to be that way. Until the gospel is resident within that culture, there won't be their own people to take and spread the gospel. It has to come from outsiders, which oftentimes means us. Now let's look at scene two, verse 28. Let's find out what happens with this woman as she returns home. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now, I believe, as I said before, that this woman believed. And the reason I believe that is because look at the incredible effectiveness of her testimony. What she was saying was very, very weird. Can you imagine her returning to town? Guess what, guys? Guess who I just had a conversation with? You know the Messiah that we've been looking for for several hundreds of years now? You know, the hopes of all our dreams? Well, I just had a conversation with him. All right. But you know, they believed her. Look ahead at verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. They believed her. Why? Because they could see that she believed it. Her life had been touched. They could see the conviction inside her. In spite of this incredible thing that she was saying. It would be like me walking into the church office one day and saying, Guys, there's a flying saucer outside. But they believed her in spite of that. Now, to me, David's laughing because he can just imagine me walking in on a Monday. And, 
Uh, but to me, it's incredible for anybody from another culture to believe the gospel. I mean, think of a Muslim or a Hindu or whatever completely reorienting their view of the world and of God. I can't believe it. I, to me, when people come to Christ from other things, I don't understand it. Except that the only explanation is that the Spirit of God is at work. And, of course, that's our only hope in missions work. Now, let's flip over to scene three. Scene three begins in verse 31. Meanwhile, sort of back at the ranch, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. Now, I think the Lord deserved to eat something there. They had been on their feet, probably carrying heavy packs for at least six hours. He had been talking for probably well over an hour with this woman. The disciples had gone into town to scare up some grub. And Jesus was no doubt very tired, very hungry, very thirsty. So the Lord, eat something. You know, we've got a Whopper for you. We've got Dr. Pepper, Thomas, you know, get those fries to Jesus. He's hungry. Uh, but Jesus, seizing upon the opportunity, one of those rare moments to teach a dynamic truth to the disciples. And he says this, I have food to eat that you know not of. He wanted them to know he had been completely reinvigorated by the experience. And what was it that reinvigorated him, that gave him so much nourishment and satisfaction and fulfillment? Well, he had been speaking the gospel. He had been involved in proclaiming how a person who was lost could have eternal life. He was involved in a rescue operation, and the thing just turned him on. It gave him new life and new power. Monica used to share that at times, back in college, she would be up in her dorm room, kind of depressed, you know how circumstances go in college, and uh, feeling kind of down. And she would think, this is sort of worthless. Uh, and she would grab one of the other sisters there at Penn State and say, let's go see if somebody wouldn't mind hearing about the gospel. And they would go out on the Penn State campus and get into a conversation. And sometimes, you know, of course, the, the person would pray to receive Christ. And she would share that it would completely bring back her perspective and her joy in the Lord, you know. And her problems, whatever they were, would appear just what they were, very small, in light of what we're really here supposed to be doing. But Jesus says he was completely reinvigorated. Now the disciples say, could somebody have brought him some food? I think John had a sense of humor. Uh, you know, who brought Jesus food, you know? Jesus is obviously trying to take him to a higher plane here. I could just see John, about 90 AD, beginning to write this. And the other apostles saying, no, come on, John, don't put that in there. Uh, that's kind of embarrassing, you know. But he proceeds to do it. Because I think he has a sense of humor, as the Lord does. And Jesus' response in verse 34 is what I want to zero in on today. You know, if we get nothing else from our time in the Word, remember this verse and its implications for us. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, what exactly was Jesus doing that he equates with accomplishing the work of the Father? Well, he's doing two things, evangelism and missions. And he says, that's my food. If I were to ask you this morning, what's your food? What is it that drives you? What is it that turns you on, that motivates you? What is it that your mind drifts toward in those moments? What would it be? We'd probably have about as many responses as there are people. 
But Jesus says, my food, his drive, was to do exactly that for which he has been sent. Now, our problem is we look at a passage like this and we say, well, of course Jesus said that. I mean, after all, he's the son of God. If I was the Messiah, I'd say that too. Uh, you know, here's the, the man, Christ, who has the spirit beyond measure. But Jesus is not unique in this. Rather, he's a model. You see, all throughout the book of John, John brings special attention to the fact that Jesus was sent with a mission. And Jesus is always making reference to him who sent me and doing the work for which I have been sent and the Father who has sent me and his work, his mission. And then as the book closes, in a number of places, John says very straightforwardly to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. And as we call ourselves disciples today, we have been sent. Jesus says, if a man will not take up his cross and follow after me, he is not worthy to be my disciple. If a man does not forsake everything he has for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, he is not worthy to be my disciple. And what Jesus is modeling for us is that we should hunger and thirst and, and be absorbed in accomplishing that for which we have been sent. God has given us a mission. See, the problem is we spend most of our lives playing little games. But rather we need to see we're here for a purpose. God doesn't have us here simply to be taking up oxygen or to be coming, filling up a pew or tithing or whatever. But we're here for a purpose. And Jesus is our example in this. You ever wondered in the face of the Great Commission, in the face of what is happening in the world today, why is it that God's chosen people are most of the time God's frozen people. Well, I'll tell you what I think it is. I think we've ignored our charge. We've forgotten the reason that God has us on this earth. A couple of centuries ago, when a young minister asked the Duke of Wellington whether or not it was useless to attempt to evangelize India, he very sternly replied, Young man, what are your marching orders? And that young minister got the point. You see, it's irrelevant if we think it's useful or not, practical to evangelize India or any other country. It's irrelevant to ask if it's convenient or possible or comfortable. We've been given a charge to do. God has given us a task. And even in 1986, that task is largely undone. And what Jesus is saying to us here, the key to a life of significance is that you and I be about doing our Father's purposes, accomplishing His work. Now, let me clarify something here. Am I saying that everybody, if they want to be faithful to God, if they want to have a life of significance, need to go, needs to go into missions? Well, clearly no. You know, Obviously, that's not the case. I don't believe, however, of course, that missions is, should be something unique and special that we kind of keep out here, that a few oddballs get involved in. It needs to be integrally involved in the church and a, and a total effort of the body of Christ. But I really doubt that the Father intends for the majority of people to go overseas. But what Jesus is showing us is that it should be our hunger to be involved in the work of the Father, specifically in evangelism, working hard at building up the body of Christ, and in some way or another, all of us being involved in the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations. But let's think about missions for a second. As God looks out on the planet, 
what does he see? He's declared how important it is on his heart that everybody have the same opportunity to hear. What does he see? Well, for one thing, he sees two and a half billion people who are presently not only have never heard, but never will hear the gospel. They're called unreached peoples. In other words, they are presently beyond the reach of any gospel witness. The church has not made it into their midst. Now, I don't know about you, but two and a half billion is sort of one of those mind-boggling numbers. You know, it's a two and then I think a five, if I'm not mistaken, and then a whole bunch of zeros. And, uh, you know, who can put their arms around a number like that? It's sort of like what Barry Goldwater said about the defense budgeting process. You know, a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon it could add up to some real money. Well, I don't know how big a billion is, but I I have an idea of what a, a million is. Take in your mind all the people of Idaho. And let's gather them together in one place. And I don't know where that would be that I can think of, except maybe Garden Valley. You know, kind of this, this flat place, and you could probably have everybody in one place. And you get out there, and, and every man and woman and child and baby and every living human being is there, right there in Garden Valley. And you're out sort of on one of the mountains, and all you can see is this mass sea of humanity. You know, all you can see is heads. Well, that would be just shy of a million. Okay, am I right? Something about 800,000 people in the state of Idaho. Okay, so that's about a million. Well, you know, a billion is a thousand millions. And that gets to be a little bit too far out. But what God sees today is two and a half billion who are presently beyond the reach and will never hear the gospel if things stay the way they are. We say, wait, we've got something like 85,000 plus missionaries around the world, don't we, from various countries? Well, that's true. Uh, We also have over a million three hundred thousand Avon representatives, uh, just to keep it in perspective. But the point is, many should consider missionary service and taking the gospel overseas. Many will want to serve where the need is greatest. And if you'll permit me, I'd like to read just a, a few brief statistics on, on the world and, and how the gospel sort of spreads out. Nine percent of the world's population speak English. Nine percent. of the world's Christians come from the 9% who speak English. 94% of the ordained ministers in the world serve the 9% who speak English. 96% of the church's income is spent among the 9% who speak English. Clearly, we've got a real disproportion in terms of reaching the world for Christ. And as I said, many will want to serve where the need is greatest. Well, Jesus goes on to explain the harvest field. Verse 35. Do not say four months more and then the har- Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the reaper draws his wages. Even now, he harvests the crop for eternal life. This afternoon, Monica and I are going to do some sowing. We've got these great plans for a garden. Claude Levitt was very kind to come over yesterday and, and rototill our weed patch for us. Uh, perhaps after the service, he'll tell you how he got his foot caught in the blades of the rototiller machine. Fortunately, it was just his shoe, not his foot. But uh, we're, we're going to do some planting. 
we've got great scheme for a garden, and, and uh, we're going to have some great salads out of this thing. We're going to have some, a section over here for lettuce, and a section over here for tomatoes, and a section over here for carrots, and a section for cucumbers. Over here, we're going to grow bacon bits and croutons, and we're going we're gonna to have our salads all set up. Uh, but see, when you plant gardens like that, it takes X amount of time before you can reap, before you can begin to gather the fruit. Jesus says, when we're talking about the harvest of souls, the harvest of bringing nations into the kingdom, time is not a factor. You don't say, there's only, you have to wait four more months, because time is not a factor. And Jesus knew, as you and I, as his disciples, would look at the task of the harvest, that we would tend to make excuses, delaying excuses. We said, Lord, there's no way we can reach the world in our generation. And it's too hard. It's too costly. We don't have the money. We have other priorities for it. Uh, the countries are closed. Lord, don't you know they don't give missionary visas? Or, Lord, we, we can't afford to just send everybody. We just need to send a few, you know, maybe one every ten years. Uh, and all the while, this generation of the lost are condemned to unbelief. And that the Lord urges us then to work past our excuses that would tend to delay. Because what he says is the harvest is ripe. And it's ripe now. See, the world is desperate. It's hard for us to imagine that in most of the countries of the world, they're in a desperate spiritual situation. They're in a famine that's far worse than the physical food famine that Ethiopia had. Because we look everywhere and people can hear the gospel if they want to. You can't even drive a mile in the city of Boise without seeing a church or, or a temple or something. Uh... You know, there, there's churches everywhere. And yet that's not true of most of the rest of the world. They're desperate. They haven't heard. Their children will never have the opportunity to hear about Jesus the way our children will. And you know, that's why short-term missions works. Do you know that? We send out people, short-term, and you know what happens? They see with their own eyes hundreds of thousands, millions who have never heard who have never heard John 3.16. And their eyes get about this big, and they say, well, I don't have a seminary education, and I don't have a lot of real proficient gifts, you know, like we have back at, at Cole, and, uh, you know, I, I don't have much money, but you know what I, I do have? I know Jesus, and I can tell them about Jesus. And I like to go on record, I think I'd like to make a prediction that if these 17 or so people that we're sending to the Philippines and to New Guinea and a number of others, college students with Campus Crusade who are going to other countries, that their lives are going to be different. They're going to be changed. And I think we're even, they're going to come back and we're going to see a few careers changed, not to put them on the spot. But you know why? Because after they see what they're going to see, they're never going to be the same again. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. This phrase that Jesus is saying about the harvest being plentiful must have been a very favorite one of his. He says it in a number of places, a number of instances. He said in a couple of places that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You know, he must have been looking ahead to the 1980s. Uh, Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he might send forth, send out laborers into the harvest field. And that's what we're called to do. If we look around the unreached places of the world, there's an urgent crucial need for reinforcements and for new efforts. 
and many of us will want to work where the need is greatest. Along this line, I think it's very apropos to read this quote from the book, I'd Love to Tell the World, since yesterday was the opening of fishing season. Where do you like to fish best? Where thousands of people are stepping all over each other with oftentimes the same bait in a lake known to have been heavily fished day after day for decades? Where fish are gorged with bait and most of them swim wearily or disdainfully away as bait aplenty splashes near them from the hordes of fishermen jockeying desperately for position and stumbling all over one another? Or would you prefer to fish where the train may be difficult, danger may lurk in the vicinity, the lake is attainable only after sacrifice and hardship, but oh, the hungry fish. Multitudes fight and starve for even one morsel of food, and many have never so much as seen one time the bait you have to offer. If you prefer the latter fishing scene, that is missions. Now, Jesus goes on to say in verse 36, he says, Even now, he who harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Now, who, what does he mean by sowers and reapers? Okay, sowers is somebody who puts the seed in the ground. Reapers is somebody who comes back uh, four to six months later and actually gathers the fruit, gathers the grain, whatever. But in this metaphor, what is Jesus talking about? Well, he and John the Baptist had been doing quite a bit of sowing and reaping. And that was the Samaritans approached them. Jesus anticipated doing even more reaping. Uh, we're told in chapter 3 that John the Baptist had been evangelizing in a city or a village called Anon near Salim. Of course, you'll recognize Salim as an Arab name. And these people, very doubtless, were the ancestors of modern-day Palestinians and Jordanians. So they, John the Baptist and Jesus, were involved in sowing and reaping. But a sower and a reaper both are people who verbally proclaim the gospel and urge men to be reconciled to God. A reaper is one who sees the results and sees lives change, and perhaps sees baptisms. But a sower is one who speaks the gospel, but doesn't necessarily see any fruit. Now, it's great to reap. It's great when people receive Christ, and, you know, and we can praise the Lord. But we also need to sow. And Jesus is making it very clear to us, encouraging us, that both are valuable, both are necessary, and in the end, both are going to share equally in the joy and the reward from the Lord. So this really should motivate us to sow, to share the gospel with our friends, perhaps even to take the gospel overseas among resistant peoples, uh, even if we're just sowing. I really love the definition of evangelism that Campus Crusade uses. Some of you perhaps know it. It's sharing the good news about Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and leaving the results to God. You know? And that's all we can do. And yet sowing is just as valuable as reaping. I've done a fair amount of sowing in my Christian life, uh, not nearly as much as I should have. I've done some reaping. Frankly, I do neither of them very well. But I know that in heaven, I'll see the results of both, as, as you will as well. And so the Lord encourages us 
to sow. Now, the scene moves on to scene 4. Back in the village, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. What happened in this little Arab village was remarkable. Majority, perhaps even the whole town, were touched by God and came into the kingdom. Here there was great rejoicing in heaven. And you know, much of the world can be this responsive. You know, can, can just grab on to the gospel and it can permeate whole societies. And much of the people, even Americans today, can be this responsive. Uh, have you ever had the opportunity of leading somebody to Christ? And you just begin to even say the word Jesus. And they say, yes, I want to make him my Lord and Savior. You're kind of surprised, you know. Uh, but it's kind of like a piece of overripe fruit falling off the tree into your hands. We have a friend who recently was back east. And uh, she was with another friend of hers. And they were in, in this park. And they were looking for people who might be interested in hearing uh, the good news. And they saw this couple over under a tree. And they felt particularly led to go over there and, and uh, broach uh, spiritual things with them. And as they began to do so, the, the young man said, you know... Uh, I got out of prison just a couple of months ago. And last night I was ready to, to quit it all. But I got on my knees and I said, God, if you're real, show me. And if there's any answers to this mess, show me. And here you are. And the guy just fell out of the tree, in a sense, uh, into the kingdom. See, the problem is people are more eager to hear than we are to tell. And I know the fears that well up inside me. Uh, but this is an encouragement to us to really go ahead And this is an encouragement too, a great motivator in missions, because the gospel can spread so quickly, so rapidly through a society. It's humble labor, but the results can be so dramatic. Claude and Barbara, of course, shared last week, labored uh, very humble circumstances in Guyana for a number of years, and then almost overnight, the whole village came into the kingdom after six-some years. And now hundreds, if not, I think, over a thousand are now brothers and sisters in Christ as a result of their labor and the labor of a few of their colleagues. And what a motivator in missions. See? The gospel can spread so rapidly. Well, kind of in conclusion, I think there's perhaps four applications that we can make out of this very seriously for our lives. First of all, we need to get very serious in our relationship with God. There's probably no one here who's not attracted to this kind of lifestyle that we could say with Jesus... My food is to be about the Father's business, the Father's harvest. And yet if God is going to use us in the harvest field, there has to be a real New Testament reality in our walks. And you may be thinking, well, you know, my life is messed up. My Christian life is a farce. My marriage is a mess. That's all right. Because the beautiful thing about the grace of God is that God can take us right where we are. But the point is, we need to put such a priority on our relationship with God. He really needs to be Lord. Christ needs to be Lord of all or not Lord at all. Lord of everything or not Lord of anything. 
and we need to get very seriously about the things of the Lord and about kingdom work. Secondly, as Jesus is modeling for us, we need to really devote ourselves to his work, to the reaching the lost, to the building up of the body, to making disciples of all nations. We may even need to pray, Lord, forgive me, because I've been caught in so many diversions, and I put everything else but your kingdom first. Lord, make your work, your purposes, my food. Third, as Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send forth more laborers in the harvest. I think we need to do just that. I need to do it. I need to make it more of a habit, and as well as all of us need to. You know, when we hear of a country, we hear of a harvest field that is ripe, that is needy for the gospel, you know, shouldn't we just get out on our knees right then and there and pray that God send forth people? You know, if we hear of a country like Turkey, it used to be such a, a Christianized nation with the gospel, particularly the work of Paul, now scarcely a believer in the whole country of some 40 million people, uh, scarcely any missionaries at all, no Christian witness, uh, why can't we just get on our knees and say, Lord, you love them so much. You have such a compassion for the people, uh, even the children of Turkey. Send forth laborers. Send forth disciples into that needy country. Because I believe, as you say, the harvest there is white. It's plentiful. Maybe even, Lord, send forth people from Cole Community Church. And then fourthly, I say this very, very sincerely, and very earnestly, I really believe that many, many of us need to consider going. Clearly, not all of us, not even the majority of us, but we need to go where God sends us. God may send us to stay here in Boise. God may send us to the uttermost parts of the world, but we need to be involved somewhere in his harvest field. And we don't do so out of compulsion, out of some guilt trip, but Jesus, as he says here, just very graciously invites us to this bountiful and beautiful work of the eternal harvest. But I'm personally quite convinced that God is or will be calling many of us here at Cole to the mission field. Many of you are familiar with the person of Hudson Taylor. In the 19th century, probably more than any other individual, was responsible for opening up the interior of China to the gospel. And he used to return from trips from China to speak oftentimes before thousands in Great Britain and America. And this is what he said. He's speaking here of China, but of course we, can, we know that it pertains to all of the unreached peoples on earth. Oh, think not so much of China's needs and claims as of Christ's needs and claims. When on earth his voice was heard, that voice is silent. He wants your voice to go. When on earth his eyes wept over the perishing, those eyes weep no more. He wants your eyes to weep over the perishing. Christ has need of you, dear brothers. Christ has need of you, dear sisters. To many of you here, it may be his call, his claim, his duty will require you to work at home. And it is a very blessed thing to work at home if he wants you to. But there are many others, I am quite sure, who, if they are abiding in Christ, will not abide in the United States. The Lord has need of lights in the darkness, and know how great is that darkness. Let's pray. 
Lord, we are your disciples. We are called by your name. We have very freely received of your grace, of reconciliation, of an eternal relationship with God who loves us and wants to bless us forever. And Lord, at the same time, we would just acknowledge this morning that you have called us to take the word of reconciliation out to the nations. All of us, Lord, are attracted to this radical lifestyle of, of even being spiritual revolutionaries who would take your word to the thousands, to the millions who have never heard. Father, we ask that you might give us each wisdom, direction, and a hunger for how we can be involved in your harvest. For we believe what you say, that they are white unto being harvested. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray these things. Amen.